Chapter Twenty Two of The Long Shadow by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. Chapter Twenty Two. Settled in Full. On a lonely part of the trail to town, queerly, it was when he was rounding the low, barren hill where he and Dill had first met. He took out his brand book and went over the situation. It was Barney he rode, and Barney could be trusted to pace along decorously, with the reins twisted twice around the saddle horn. So Billy gave no thought to his horse, but put his whole mind on the figures. He was not much used to these things. Beyond keeping tally of the stock at branding and shipping time and putting down what details of his business he dared not trust to memory, a pencil was strange to his fingers. But the legal phrases in the paper, left by Dill and signed by the cook and Nighthawk as witnesses, gave him a heavy sense of responsibility, that everything should be settled exactly right. So now he went over the figures slowly, adding them from the top down and from the bottom up, to make sure he had the totals correct. He wished they were wrong. They might then be not quite so depressing. Let me see now. I turned over 4,523 head of stock, all told. Hell of a fine job of guessing I'd done. Me saying they'd be over 6,000. That made $94,983. And according to old Brown, and I guess he had it framed up correct, Dilly owes him $2,217 yet instead of coming out with enough to start some other business. It's sure queer the way figures always come out little when you want em big and big when you want em little. Them debts now, they could stand a lot of shaving down. Twelve thousand dollars in interest to the bank. I can't do a darn thing about them twelve thousand. If Dilly hadn't gone and made a cast-iron agreement, I could have held old Brown up for a few thousand more on account of the increasing saddle stock. I'd work that bunch up till it sure was a dandy lot of horses. But what you gonna do? He stared dispiritedly out across the brown prairie. I'd oughta put Dilly next to that, only I never thought about it at the time, and I was so dead sure of the range stuff. And there's the men got to have their money right away quick, so's they can hurry up and blow it in. If Dilly ain't back tonight, or I don't hear from him, I reckon I'll have to draw my little old wad out of the bank and pay the sons of guns. I sure ain't gonna need it to buy dishes and rocking chairs and pictures. And I was gonna get her a piano. Oh, hell. He still rode slowly after that but he did not bother over the figures that stood for Dilly's debts. He sat humped over the saddle horn like an old man and stared at the trail and at the four feet of Barney coming down pluck-pluck with leisurely regularity in the dust. Just so was charming Billy Boyle trampling down the dreams that had been so sweet in the dreaming and leveling ruthlessly the very foundation of the fair castle he had builded in the air for Dill and himself and one other with the fairest, highest, most secret chambers for that other. And as he rode, the face of him was worn and the blue eyes of him somber and dull, and his mouth, that had lost utterly the humorous, carefree quirk at the corners, was bitter and straight and hard. He had started out with such naive assurance to succeed, 
and he had failed so utterly so hopelessly with not even a spectacular crash to make the failing picturesque he had done the best that was in him and even now that it was over he could not quite understand how everything everything could go like that how the double crank and flora how the range even had slipped from him and now dill was gone too and he did not even know where or if he would ever come back he would pay the men he had with a surprising thrift saved nearly a thousand dollars in the bank at tower that to be sure was when he had flora to save for since then he had not had time or opportunity to spend it foolishly he would take nearly every dollar the way he had figured it he would have just twenty-three dollars left for himself and he would have the little bunch of horses he had in his prosperity acquired for the pure love of owning a good horse he would sell the horses except barney and one to pack his bed and he would drift drift just as do the range cattle when a blizzard strikes them in the open billy felt like a stray his range was gone gone utterly he would roll his bed and drift and perhaps somewhere he could find a stretch of earth as god had left it unscarred by fence and plough undefiled by cabbages and sugar beets brown's new settlers were going strong on sugar beets well it's all over but the shoutin he summed up grimly when hardup came in sight i'll pay off the men and turn em loose all but jim somebody's got to stay with the bridger place till dilly shows up seein' that's all he's got left after the clean-up the rest of the debts can wait brown's mortgage ain't due yet billy had his own way of looking at financial matters and the old siwash ain't got any kick comin if he never gets another cent out of dilly the bank ain't got the cards to call dilly now for his note ain't due till near christmas so i reckon all i gotta do after i pay the boys is take my little old twenty-three plunks and my hosses if i can't sell em right off and pull out for god knows where and i don't care a damn charming billy boyle had done all that he had planned to do except that he had not yet pulled out for the place he had named picturesquely for himself much as at the beginning he was leaning heavily upon the bar in the hard-up saloon and his hat was pushed back on his head but he was not hilarious to the point of singing about the young thing and he was not to any appreciable extent enjoying himself he was merely adding what he considered the proper finishing touch to his calamities he was spinning silver dollars one by one across the bar to the man with the near white apron and he was endeavoring to get the worth of them down his throat to be sure he was being assisted now and then by several acquaintances but considering the fact that a man's stomach has certain well-defined limitations he was doing very well indeed when he had spun the twenty-third dollar to the bartender billy meant to quit drinking for the present after that he was not quite clear as to his intentions farther than forking his hoss and pulling out when there was no more to be done he felt uneasily that between his present occupation and the pulling out process lay a duty unperformed but until the door swung open just as he was crying come on fellows he had not been able to name it the pilgrim it was who entered jauntily the pilgrim who had not chanced to meet billy once during the summer and so was not aware that the truce between them was ended for good and all he knew that billy had not at any time been 
what one might call cordial, but that last stare of displeasure when they met in the creek at the double crank he had set down to a peevish mood. Under the circumstances, it was natural that he should walk up to the bar with the rest. Under the circumstances, it was also natural that Billy should object to this unexpected and unwelcome guest, and that the vague, unperformed duty should suddenly flash into his mind clear and well-defined and urgent. Back up, Pilgrim, was his quiet way of making known his purpose. You can't drink on my money, old-timer nor use a room that I'm honoring with my presence. Just right now, I'm here. It's up to you to back out. A way out. Clean outside and across the street. The pilgrim did not move. Billy had been drinking, but his brain was not of the stuff that fuddles easily, and he was not, as the pilgrim believed, drunk. His eyes, when he stared hard at the pilgrim, were sober eyes, sane eyes, and something besides. I said it, he reminded softly, when men had quit shuffling their feet and the room was very still. I don't reckon you know what you said, the pilgrim retorted, laughing uneasily and shifting his gaze a bit. What they been doping you with, Bill? There ain't any quarrel between you and me no more. His tone was abominably condescendingly tolerant, and his look was the look which a mastiff turns wearily upon a hysterical toy terrier yapping foolishly at his knees. For the pilgrim had changed much in the past year and more, during which men had respected him because he was not considered quite safe to trifle with. According to the reputation they gave him, he had killed a man who had tried to kill him, and he could therefore afford to be pacific upon occasion. Billy stared at him while he drew a long breath, a breath which seemed to press back a tangible weight of hatred and utter contempt for the pilgrim, a breath while it seemed that he must kill him there and stamp out the very semblance of humanity from his mocking face. You don't know of any quarrel between you and me? You say you don't? Billy's voice trembled a little because of the murder lust that gripped him. Well, pretty soon I'll start in and tell you all about it, maybe. Right now I'm going to give a new one, one that you can easily name and do what you damn please about. Whereupon he did as he had done once before when the offender had been a sheep herder. He stepped quickly to one side of the pilgrim, emptied a glass down inside his collar, struck him sharply across his grinning mouth, and stepped back, back until there were eight or ten feet between them. That's the only way my whiskey would go down your neck, he said. Men gasped and moved hastily out of range, never doubting what would happen next. Billy himself knew, or thought he knew, and his hand was on his gun, ready to pull it out and shoot, hungry, waiting for an excuse to fire. The pilgrim had given a bellow that was no word at all, and whirled to come at Billy, met his eyes, wavered, and hesitated, his gun in his hand and half raised to fire. Billy, bent on giving the pilgrim a fair chance, waited another second, waited and saw fear creep into the bold eyes of the pilgrim, waited and saw the inward cringing of the man. It was like striking a dog and waiting for the spring at your throat, promised by his snarling defiance, and then seeing the fire go from his eyes as he grovels, cringingly confessing you his master, himself a cur. What had been hate in the eyes of Billy changed slowly to incredulous contempt. Ain't that enough? he cried disgustedly. 
My God! Ain't you man enough? Have I got to take you by the ear and slit your gullet like they stick pigs? Or else let you go? What are you anyhow? Shall I give my gun to the barkeep and go out where it's dark? Will you be scared to tackle me then? He laughed and watched the yellow terror creep over the face of the pilgrim at the taunt. What's wrong with your gun? Ain't it working good tonight? Ain't it loaded? Heavens and earth! What else have I got to do before you'll come alive? You've been living on your rep as a bad man to monkey with, and pushing out your wishbone over it for quite a spell now. Why don't you get busy and collect another bunch of admiration from these fellows? I ain't no lightning shot man. Papa Death don't roost at the end of my six-gun, or I never suspicioned before he did. But from the save-me-quick look on you, I believe you'd faint plumb away if I let you take a look at the end of my gun with the butt end toward you. Honest to God, Pilgrim, I won't try to get in ahead of you. I couldn't if I tried, cause mine's at my belt yet, and I ain't so swift. Come on, please. Purdy, please. Billy looked around the room and laughed. He pointed his finger mockingly. Ain't he a peach of a bad man, boys? Ain't you proud of his acquaintance? I reckon I'll have to turn my back before he'll cut loose. You know he's just aching to kill me, only he don't want me to know it when he does. He's afraid he might hurt my feelings. He swung back to the pilgrim, went close, and looked at him impertinently, his head on one side. He reached out deliberately with his hand, and the pilgrim ducked and cringed away. Ah, oh, look here,' he whined. "'I ain't done nothing to you, Bill.' Billy's hand dropped slowly and hung at his side. "'You damn coward,' he gritted. "'You know you wouldn't get any more than an even break with me, and that ain't enough for you. You're afraid to take a chance. You're afraid. God!' he cried suddenly, swept out of his mockery by the rage within. And I can't kill you. You won't show nerve enough to give me a chance. You won't even fight, will you? He leaned and struck the pilgrim savagely. Get out of my sight, then. Get out of town. Get clean out of the country. Get out among the coyotes. They're near your breed than men. For every sentence there was a stinging blow a blow with the flat of his hand driving the pilgrim back step by step to the door the pilgrim shielding his head with an uplifted arm turned then and bolted out into the night behind him were men who stood ashamed for their manhood not caring to look straight at one another with so sickening an example before them of the craven coward a man may be in the doorway billy stood framed against the yellow lamplight a hand pressing hard against the casings, while he leaned and hurled curses in a voice half-sobbing with rage. It was so that Dill found him when he came looking, when he reached out and laid a big knuckled hand gently on his arm. Billy shivered and stared at him in a queer, dazed fashion for a minute. Why, hello, Dilly, he said then, and his voice was hoarse and broken. Where the dickens have you come from? Without a word, Dill, still holding him by the arm, led him unresistingly away. End of chapter 22